Good to have Miss Jan back with us. I know Ben mentioned that. Well, you have your Bibles open in front of you. Hebrews chapter uh, 12, almost said 11. Um, natural reflex, I, I guess. <clears throat> Hebrews chapter 12. Uh, for those of you visiting with us, uh, we have been going through a series through the book of Hebrews. Um, and that's why we are where we're at today. If you were picking a passage out of Hebrews, you probably wouldn't go in the middle of chapter 12. Probably go up to first, maybe at the end. I was reading, or as Bob was reading, I was thinking, what am I going to do with that at the <laughs> latter part? <laughs> but um, So you can pray for me this week uh, as I make preparations. We look at that unshakable kingdom we've received. Uh, but today I want to focus our attention on verse 11 through 17. Uh, in our time together through the study, through this study, uh, we've been looking at the subject of running. We two weeks ago dealt with um, that illustration given to us by the writer of Hebrews, uh, verses one through three, as he speaks about the Christian life, the, uh, the Christian walk as a marathon, as a race, and we're called to run our race. Well. Uh, then he reminds us not only as we look at the first part of that, but what we looked at last week, it is, uh, it is not a race that is void of pain, of suffering, of sorrow. We face those things, and, um, and so we are called to endure uh, and to run with resolve the race that God has set before us. And we have a little bit of that theme this morning as we consider some of the applications and the uh, what he instructs us in verses 12 through 17 before we look at that i'm just going to pray for us in our time and then we'll uh then we'll look at this passage together father we thank you so much for your grace to us thankful for uh, just even as we uh, again think of uh, your goodness and your gospel going to the ends of the earth and even this morning already being reminded of that Lord, we, uh, we just pray that you'd speak to our hearts, give wisdom, clarity, uh, and Lord, that you would be glorified in us and in our response to your word. And we'll give you the glory for all that you do in Jesus' name, amen. When I was in the fifth grade, uh, uh, elementary school, our Christian school decided for whatever reason they were going to join up with the other local Christian schools in the area and uh, have a field and track day. We were unprepared for that. Uh, we did not uh, practice. Uh, we did not go over any rules or what kind of races it would be. We just were a Christian school. They're Christian schools. Let's just go run. <laughs> Young boys got a lot of energy. Let them run. So I think that was the philosophy of that. Uh, so we went, and I was not a very fast runner, so I was not put on anything very uh, short distance that, that required to be fast. Uh, so they signed me up for this 800-meter race. Well, I didn't know what 800 meter meant, and um, I just know what a race means. You, they say start, and you start, and you go, and you run to the finish line. I could do that. So I took off pretty quickly. And halfway around that first lap, I, your side was hurting. My side was hurting, not your side. Your side may be hurting too, but <laughs> it, it was very difficult, and I realized that I would not be able to maintain the same pace. I was close to the lead for a half a lap. And then as I was coming around to end that race, the people kept yelling and shouting, you know, all the people on my team, one more lap, one more lap. And I'm like, what? 
are you kidding me? You know, I realized what 800 meters meant. There's only 400 on one lap, so you've got to go twice. But I did not know. I was unprepared uh, to run. I was unprepared. I did finish, not last. There was a guy who was in worse shape than I was who <laughs> finished last, but he was from the same school, so it didn't help us out any. <laughs> Uh, well, our rider wants us to be prepared to run our race. It is a race that the Christian, uh, um, that the Christians that we're engaged in, and the Bible uh, gives wisdom to us to remind us as it as it instructs us along the way that it is not an easy competition. It is not an easy race. We're not to think about the Christian life, living it out, faithfulness to God, and believing in Christ is is a cakewalk or or something that is carefree or without its troubles and problems. It requires of us endurance and patience and long-suffering. It requires of us, as Pink tells us in his commentary on this section, it requires of us holy resolve if we would run the race God has set before us. And we've looked at several different aspects of this uh, previously. Um, and as he comes to verse number 12, he he begins giving us more ways we may run with resolve or we may run our race well. We've already talked about many in the beginning of this, the first three verses that were to lay aside weights and sins which cling to us and that we are uh, to set our focus on the finish line and run. Um, but he also in his wisdom, his pastorly care for his people, he he takes that moment because we might, uh, as we tend to do, but you don't understand, sir, this is difficult. And so he tells them that the experience of pain that they have is meant for their good. And that it is God's fatherly care in their life as he speaks about discipline. And verse number 11 really kind of summing that up for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. How many of you have had that experience? Someone says, thank you, sir. May I have another one? We don't do that. It's difficult. It's painful. And he's not glossing over that, but he's bringing their minds back to where it needs to be. Pain is not the goal in itself. But rather, it is to produce that pleasant, uh, peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Again, using that illustration or the words there of of a gymnasium that we would train for competition, the difficult exercise and, uh, and all the stuff that we go through to compete in some kind of athletic competition. Uh, it's not easy. And so then he begins uh, to show us or, or explain to us several ways in which we can run well. And I'm going to share those with you this morning, Lord willing, uh, beginning in verse number 12 and 13. If we are to run the race God has set before us, then we must, uh, we must be encouraged. We must find encouragement. We must be encourageable. Look with me at verse number 12 and 13. He says that we are to lift up your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. Make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. Here he has already described being under the disciplined hand of God and the suffering which comes along with that, uh, and, and which in many cases we wrestle with discouragement and, and sometimes even despair and despondency. And the church itself may have been dealing with that in their own experience, having stuff taken away from them and being made fun of in the public 
square and being cast aside as some kind of crazy person that's left the faith of God altogether because they're embracing this Jesus Messiah. And yet in the middle of this, he's calling them to gather strength, to gather strength, to be encouraged, not to allow the despondency or the discouragement to rule them or drive them. He's not saying that you're to be numb, that you're not to feel or you're not to or you're to be callous and you're not to feel the effects of hardship or suffering or difficulties that you face. We are humans. We we face those things. We feel those things. But but in the process of that, we must learn to shepherd ourselves in the middle of it. Paul himself, the great apostle who has seen revelations, which he says not lawful for him to utter, also says in the same epistle that he despaired even life itself. And yet, through that, he finds hope and encouragement, reminds us of the words uh, said of David as his family has been taken off into captivity and the people were ready to stone him. The people that followed him was ready to put David to death for what had taken place. And, and David says this, or in, and it says this of David, and, great, and he was greatly distressed for the people spoke of stoning him because all the people were bitter in soul Uh, each for his sons and daughters, but David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. That's exactly what we read here in the uh, words in verse 12 and 13 is to to cause them to strengthen their self. The image is is that of melting away. Uh, We see a little bit of this in Ezekiel chapter 21, verse number 7. At, At the news of what Babylon would do to Uh, Jerusalem when they came the last time to completely level the place and haul everybody out of there. The destruction of the temple and the murder and the chaos that would take place. And the Bible says the word come to Ezekiel and because of the news that is coming, Ezekiel explaining this to the people, every heart will melt and all hands will be feeble and every spirit will faint and all knees will be weak as water. You get the image, right? It's completely loss of strength. The overwhelmingness, what would come, and it is remarkable when you read Isaiah, the the return of this, God's visiting his people in exile and bringing them back is is the opposite effect. He says in Isaiah uh, chapter 33, he says to strengthen the weak hands and to make firm the feeble knees. The message of God and his visitation among his people, what he will do when he restores them, is meant to, to gather up their strength and to gather up their, uh, their weak knees, to strengthen them in the Lord, to cause them to stand. And, and we have the image in our mind of someone running just out of control, uh, gasping for breath and overwhelmed with the circumstances that is going on. He says that you need to gather up your arms and your, and your knees you need to be strengthened in the Lord. Strengthen your drooping hands and your weak knees and make straight the paths of your feet, which could simply mean clear the way of the obstacles in your feet and, uh, and make a straight path for them. Taking care of that which is lame, lest it be dislocated and put out of joint, verse number 13. All of this is to remind us that we are to encourage ourselves in the difficulties in life, but we are to encourage ourselves in the Lord. Now, I don't know about you, but that's easier said than done, isn't it? It's easy for me to stand up here and say to you, you need to be encouraged this morning. 
Amen. Let's go home, bow our heads, be done with it. And you might say to me, well, you don't understand what I'm going through. I know, but deal with it. Deal with it. Get on with it. Let's get over it, whatever the case may be, as we tend to do in our, in our society. Encourage yourself. Find godly resolve in your trials that, you may, that they may not defeat you. But it's another thing to carry that out in your life. But the writer is not just simply saying this to Christians uh, just off the cuff. Just saying that because that's what you're supposed to say when you see people are going through bad times. Suck it up and let's go. He's not doing that at all. What he has already done before he gets to the point of strengthen yourself in the Lord or or be strengthened in the Lord is he's laid down a foundation where they can find strength and resolve. And let me just give you a few of these that we see uh, in the text uh, for us and throughout the, the letter here, and the first is we find encouragement and resolve in the love of the Father. We find encouragement and resolve in the love of the Father. He says back in verse number 6, for the Lord disciplines the ones he... And we looked at that last week, didn't we? But who does he discipline? And he's trying to tell us that no matter what we go through in this life, it is not severing the reality of God's love. In fact, in in this context, he's saying it is evidence of God's love in your life. You can find encouragement in difficulties and in our hardships because we are loved by the Heavenly Father. And what he says in Romans 8, tells us that all things work to the good of those that love him are called according to the purpose. Who are those that love him? Are those who are foreknown by him. Those who have been loved by God. That's what John tells us in 1 John when he says, Here in his love, not that you love God, verse, but that he loved you. You see, our difficulties and our joys, all of this, all this comes out of the love of our Heavenly Father. And no matter what we go through, nothing severs that. Nothing stops that. Nothing overcomes that. Paul's argument, what shall I say then? Shall distress or tribulation or persecution, all these things, shall they separate us from the love of Christ? In church, what's the answer to that? Nothing. Knowing all these things were more than conquerors through him who loved us. So you see, we find this morning there's a great reason to have encouragement in our situation and and where we're at in life because we are loved by the Father. Because we've experienced the love of God through Christ Jesus. But not only because we have this love uh, from the Father, but also we find encouragement and resolve in the fellowship of suffering. And my cousin um, went through a season in life where he decided he was going to the gym and I don't know if he became an idol or not, but he went from really skinny to, like, massive, intimidating, you know. And so he and a couple of guy uh, friends of his uh, decided they were going to join one of those strong men, iron men. It was, I don't know what it was. Had a lot of mud involved. (laughs) Frozen water that you have to jump into. A tube of four that you had to kind of shimmy across with your hands would you do that i don't know (laughs) but the camaraderie that it brought about in that little group that they could all wear the same shirt at the same time at the end of it when they finish i mean you do all that for a (laughs) t-shirt i could just wait and buy one on ebay or something i don't even have to go through it 
But there was a fellowship going through that common experience. And there is, in one sense, what we see that corporally as we go through suffering or the church suffers together, it suffers together and it strengthens fellowship with the body of Christ. Others who have been through things similar to the things that we've been through, there is that that connection because they get it. They understand at least a little bit of what's going on in my world, in my life. And so there is that fellowship, encouragement that we have in that. But it isn't just you as I look out that I find encouragement and fellowship with. It's in the sufferings of Christ himself. That's what the text brings us uh, here in verse number 3. We're to look to Jesus Christ, the founder and perfecter of our faith. In verse number 2, verse number 3, he says, Let us consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, pointing us back to the sufferings of Christ. You've not walked a road in this life that he didn't blaze a trail for. You've not gone through a path that he hasn't himself went through first. But it isn't just that he has gone on before us. Romans 8 gives us what we read this morning. It gives us that joy as we eagerly wait the redemptions of the sons of God. Creation waits for that and it speaks about that glory which shall be revealed in us. And that is promised to those who suffer. But he doesn't say for him, but those who suffer with him. And you see that fellowship in our own life. In the sufferings of our lives, we find encouragement that he walks this road with us. That he, he himself is our encouragement. His presence is a source of our encouragement as we walk this life, as we run our race. But, but notice also, I think it's noted for us that we find encouragement and resolve in the help and grace provided for us in Christ. Turn back to chapter number 4. Verse number 14. Since then, speaking of Christ being our high priest, we have a great high priest who passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest is un able to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect is tempted as we are, yet without sin. So first he reminds us that we have a high priest. He he speaks of what kind of high priest, the very Son of God, passed into the heavens. Not only is he passed into heavens, but he is one who is able, one who sympathizes with us in our weakness and our suffering. But it isn't just, man, I feel bad for you. I hate that you're going through that. He he doesn't do that. He he goes on and says in verse number 16, well, if he's in heaven, if he's interceding for us, if he sympathizes for us, if if he's been tempted as we are yet without sin, so he has overcome all of these things that we face. Verse number 16, let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Why? Well, he tells us, doesn't he? That we may receive what? And find what? To what? Because we find help in the middle of our difficulty, in the middle of our sorrow, in the middle of our suffering at the throne of grace. See, we can be encouraged. Why? Because the throne is always open. The door, he is the door. It's never closed for his children. Always open. 
And it is there that we find encouragement, we find help and grace in our time of need. But let me just say one more thing, just by way of our encouragement, we find encouragement in obedience and faith. The obedience of faith. Grace meets, grace and courage meets us as we walk by faith. That's a, a chapter number 11 is. They endured seeing a city whose builder and founder was God. It was in, in their walk of faith, in their, in their obedience to God, that they, he, they continually found encouragement and strength to continue to walk. It's like inertia. Inertia. That's a scientific term. Some of y'all can meet Ben later on and he'll define that for you. Things in motion tend to stay in motion. It's a lot easier to keep them in motion than those things that are resting. It's in our obedience and walking with God that we find encouragement and strength to continue on. Now, if we're going to run well in our difficult times, we must learn how to be encouraged and where to find encouragement. But secondly, notice with me in verse number 14, we must be engaged. He says, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. That is a very strong, strong statement. Your translation probably begins with uh, mine of the ESV. It says to strive. Some of you have uh, NIV, which says make every effort. Others of you in a New American Standard Bible says pursue King James for those three or four of you in here. I like the King James, which says follow. I had to qualify that, right? Just so you, it says to follow after. Well, the very first word of the, the Greek here is not pursue, it's not strive, it is actually peace. It is their way of communicating the emphasis, the, the end goal of our pursuit. It's kind of to put a highlighter over this one word, they put it at the first of the sentence. But nevertheless, the word itself is important. It is translated elsewhere as persecution. It's the idea of pursuing someone and until you until uh, you apprehend them, until you you catch them, you know, you get them, you got your hands on them, you persecute them, you you're done away with them. It, it communicates not just this half-hearted sort of pursuit. Some of you have probably done that yourself, you know. Maybe you've seen kids do that. You tell them to do something, they just kind of do it. And you're like, this is just pathetic. I mean, you didn't even try to do it. This is not what he's talking about here. He's not saying that we live and run the Christian life. We pursue peace and holiness with this kind of half-heartedness, kind of halfway in, halfway out. It doesn't matter. You just close your eyes and throw a dart on a dartboard or whatever the case may be. No, it shows of an intensity to apprehend something, to seek it, to, to search it out, to pursue it, to... Uh, to make every effort, as the NIV says, to, to attain whatever it is that you're pursuing. It gives to us the idea of a wholehearted, fully zealous pursuit, a desire to apprehend it. Here he's saying that our pursuit ought to be for peace. Strive for peace with everyone. Why do we, and are we called to strive for peace for everyone? Because it's not natural. This isn't automatic. You don't put five kids in a room, toddlers in a room, and say, you know, let's see if they, they just work out peacefully. Does it work? You know, put five guys in a room and see if it works out peacefully. 
maybe by that time they, uh, they all got the same hobby or habit or whatever, and it might work. Because we are naturally at enmity not only with God, but with others. And yet he's saying it is the Christian life. If we're to run, we must be engaged. And our engagement is to pursue, to strive after peace with everyone. Paul says in Romans 12, 18, If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peacefully with all. Now let me just ask you this. Is it possible to live peacefully with all men? What do you think? A little interaction this morning, right? I think someone said no, right? But if it depends on you, that's what the text is saying. What Paul is saying, if you're the hindrance, if you're the barrier that stands in the way, then get out of the way. Don't let it be your fault that peace is not pursued. First Peter says the same thing. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. Again, Matthew 5, 9, Jesus' own words says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Is that in that pursuing of peace that we reflect who our Heavenly Father is. That means peace with everyone in our text. Peace with those who persecute you. Peace in the world. Peace with your neighbor. Peace with your spouse. Peace with your kids. It also means peace in the body of Christ. Why does he say pursue it? Because it's not natural there either. It is something that Paul says in, in Ephesians chapter number 4 that must be maintained. It, 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 takes us, it takes us preferring others' needs above our own in another place. It, it is a unity that, that takes us endeavoring to, to keep and maintain. Now I know having been here in the duration of these past three years, joyful years, we have said, and I've heard said many times, that our church, it, it, it operates, the leadership operates in unity. And, and I believe it has. I believe it does. But I also believe that that is something that, uh, that should not be taken for granted. And not just in the leadership of this church, but in the relationships in the body of Christ. Because in the moments of difficulty in your life and corporately in the body of Christ and, and culturally in the world, the, the enemy of God's people sows discord. They're very good at it. They're a long time to practice. So the writer here, maybe it was happening with the church at Hebrews. We don't know where all the difficulty and the persecution and all their big ideas and clashing with each other, how to handle that. And the writer simply is saying to them the same thing he is saying to us, that we must, as much lies within us, pursue peace. It doesn't always mean we apprehend it, but let it not because we didn't pursue it. Let it not be that reason. Strive for peace. Pursue it. We may show the, show the goodness of God with whom has made peace with us. It is a practical peace that he is showing, birthed out of the peace that we have with our Father and the peace that he has set between us corporally and that we are brought together in one gospel. Save just one way. Mozambique, it's the gospel of Jesus Christ, isn't it? Hungary, Romania, all of us brought together through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And because of that, he says, we must pursue peace. But not at all cost. 
not at all cost. The writer is not saying that we, uh, that we live pliable to every whim of the world that hates Christ and his message. To accommodate every new thing and idea that raises itself up against the knowledge of Christ. These things, these two things, peace and holiness, must be held together, not at odds with each other, not enemies. It's not an either or a, a, a option, but together. Because we have seen often in the church and in the world that, that the excess of one has been at the cost of the other. And what happens at the end of it is you lose them both. You lose them both. So it's not peace at all cost. It is not peace by itself. He, he says that we must pursue peace and holiness. In fact, he goes on to say, for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Spurgeon has rightly said uh, concerning holiness, someone who, some who have aimed at holiness had made the great mistake of supposing it needful to be morose, contentious, fault-finding, censorious with everybody else. Their holiness consisted of negative protests and opposition for opposition's sake. He goes on and tells us courtesy is not inconsistent with faithfulness. It is not needful to be savage in order to be sanctified. A bitter spirit is a poor companion for a reward of heart or a renewed heart. Let your determination principle be sweetened by the tenderness towards your fellow men. Be resolute for the right, but also be gentle, pitiful, courteous. I think Spurgeon's right. I grew up in a culture that loved the word of God. They were good at standing upon the authority of scripture. They were, had a strong zeal for evangelism. But many, many of those churches fell into the same sin as the sin that you see here. That is, that is thinking and living out this holiness without regard to others. This kind of contentious, battering, brutal kind of religion which is uh, dominated by what you're against more than what you're for. It seems not only do they hate society and the culture, but, uh, but almost anyone that opposes them. And it's sad because so much of the foundation is right and true and I gained so much from that culture. But, but some of you stand back and be like, it, could there ever be peace? Could there ever be something we can stand and agree on? Because they're so against everything. And that's a temptation. That's a temptation we all face in, in striving after holiness and and. Growing in our sanctification is to, to stand over others in that condemning fashion and just kind of be a check mark to make sure they don't measure up to who I am. Now, if you've never done that, you, maybe you know someone who has. That's a safer way to say that, right? And always condemning others. Now, there's a, a place where we stand for truth and stand for what is right and unwavering in our convictions to what the Bible says. But you see these two things going together here. They're speaking the truth, but you speak it not brashly, arrogantly, or rudely, but you speak it in love, the Bible says. You speak it in love. 
So here he tries to bring us back to balance, that we pursue, pursue both peace with others and holiness. And what encouragement we find in verse number 14, and warning, a holiness, the holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. And as some of us might say, well, of course, holiness. But after all, that's what Christ gives to us, his righteousness imputed to us. And when we believe him, we're made righteous before God. And we will stand before him clothed in his righteousness. And amen, that is true. But I don't think that's what he's talking about here. I think he's talking about a practical outworking of that truth in your life, a practical righteousness, a practical, practical sanctification. It is that growth and more and more like Christ. It is the imprint or the fingerprint of God being seen on your life. Little by little, we grow in it. We don't, we don't possess it all. We're, we don't ever get to a place to where we arrive, but we are not satisfied where we're at. We, we have that pursuit, that ambition, that desire to grow more and more. Pink may be right when he speaks about uh, our holiness here may consist more in our ambitions and pursuits and desires than our apprehension of it but nevertheless it is evident it is it is something that comes with that new birth that new desire in our life when you're born again the holy the holy spirit takes up residence in us when we get saved and his work in our life is not to leave us uh, not to leave us content where we're at, but to move and change and conform us to the image of Christ. Painfully at times, amen? And that's just by way of admission. And he's saying here that without that mark in your life, without God working, moving, without even the, the desire in your life, then how can you boast of confidence that one day you'll see him who is holy? If you have no desire for holiness and all of your appetite is set on the world and ungodliness, why would we boast that heaven is our home when it will be a place of the presence of the Most Holy One? Without holiness, we will not see the world. Uh, we will not see the Lord. A.W. Payne defines holiness as devotedness to God and that temper of mind and course of conduct which agrees with the fact that we are not our own but bought with a price. And I know if you're anything like me this morning, uh, that can be somewhat of a troubling thing because you see how far short we are. I was talking to a friend of mine who was going through, who is going through some difficulties in his own life, and I said, I, I said basically what the Bible says here, he chastens us so that we may share in his holiness. And he says, I don't feel very holy. That's probably true. Who does? But the imprint of God and that work of sanctification in our life should be evident. What is he saying? He's saying pursue it. Run after it. Because you can get there in your own strength? God forbid. No. That's only a work of the Holy Spirit in us. But it reminds us it's not to be passive unengaged in the Christian walk and the Christian life and seeking God and praying and trusting 
But I want you to notice in verse number 14 the joy of that. And we'll close with this. We'll look at the warning next week, Lord willing. That holiness, the reward of it is that we will see the Lord. You see that in the verse number 14. As one, uh, one early church writer who said the great reward of the Christian race is given new eyes that we may see Christ. It is that very thing which God, which which Moses endured the wilderness, endured journeying and and staying with those stinky sheep and, and even the rebellious children of Israel 80 years so that he may see him who is invisible. The very thing he was bold enough in the desert to say, show me your glory. And God says, no, <laughs> you can and live. It is, it is the very thing which which was veiled for us in Christ as he walked upon this earth when John cried out the glory of the Lord. We've seen it in the face of Jesus Christ. And one day we'll be given new eyes to where we see him face to face. The very one that John presence and sight of him fell down as a dead man you and I will one day behold one day we will see him Peter says though you do not see him you love him it's a good passage if you want to go read that sometime and as our love is stirred up for him What an encouragement to know one day we'll see him. One day we'll see him face to face. We'll see him for who he is. The weakness of this flesh will be cast off. The weakness of our own sinful nature that we wrestle with will be laid aside. And one day you and I, which may be very soon, will behold him. And it says that that sight will be so powerful, so overwhelming. That's what John says in 1 John. That we will be transformed, changed into his image, into his likeness. Moses saw the the backside of the glory of God in Exodus. The Bible says his face shone. He kind of wondered what that looked like. One day we'll see Christ face to face and that will be so powerful that our face will not only shine, it'll completely be transformed to the image of him. Amen? The great reward of our prize lies ahead of us. It's found in the face of Jesus Christ. Be encouraged. Be encouraged through the means he gives us in this journey and through the middle of our difficulties and hardness and toughness and all that other stuff. Strengthen yourself in the Lord. We, we have to learn to bring every thought into captivity into the submission of Jesus Christ, the knowledge of Jesus Christ. We have to learn to do that. Be encouraged and pursue peace and holiness because one day we'll see him as he is. Father, we thank you for this morning that we gather together. Thank you for your word. Lord, thank for each one that's come out this morning. Just pray wherever they are in life, whatever's going on in their life, Lord, that you would give them great joy and peace found in Jesus Christ. Great anticipation that we will see him one day, our Lord and Savior, who died for our sins, rose from the dead, and is now at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us, knows us, calls us by name, protects us, walks with us. 
And Father, I pray here this morning that if any here do not know you, do not have that comfort, Lord, that you would stir and, and open their eyes. Why would they tarry? Why would they wait and stand off from a Savior like that? Lord, I pray even now that they would turn from their sins, confess them that they have sinned against God, and put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ and be saved. Lord, be with us as we leave this day. In Jesus' name, amen.